Hey, homegirls and homeboys. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. And we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you are in the right place. So buckle up, buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready. Because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. ready for turkey day i know i'm for sure looking forward to it especially after this shit show of a year i say that a lot and i've probably said it in like five episodes now and i'm not even sorry because it's 110 percent true 2020 is terrible and i would like to speak to a manager because i would like a refund okay karen i'm gonna knock you out them fighting words um but all i have to say is 2021 better come in here like it has some motherfucking sense okay right we're all like ooh, 20 expectations are pretty fucking low yeah we're all like ooh, 2021 2021 and then it's probably gonna be hold my beer yeah like even worse but anyway on a more serious note um i picked today's case because it took place around thanksgiving so it was kind of on theme with the release of today's episode so here we are Also, I'm pretty excited that we're adding a new state to our list today. We'll be visiting the great state of Tennessee for today's episode. I miss Tennessee. I know. I'm I'm sad that we're not going. I was there like a month ago. Take me back. So I know we've said we're trying to get away from covering Louisiana cases so much, but sorry, not sorry. Plot twist. (laughs) This case takes place in Tennessee, but it also has a little bit of Louisiana in it. We just can't help ourselves, I guess. That was so unintentional, too. Right, yeah. But the entire reason I even know about this case is because I remember it. Like, I know you sent it to me, um, what, two months ago? Right. I don't remember very many. Right. Specific. Yeah, like, I don't remember, like, the. You know it, though. (laughs) Well, now I know, but, like, at the time when I started researching, I didn't remember, like, specifics. But I remembered, like, watching it on, because it was all over the local news. Mm -hmm. Um, And you guys will see why. Once we get into it, because uh, it was everywhere. But anyway, today we're going to be talking about the brutal murders of a husband and wife, Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy in Knoxville, Tennessee in November of 2016. So although these horrendous murders took place nearly four years ago, this case has still been ongoing until very recently. Mm -hmm. And by very recently, I mean literally like a month or two ago. Right. But I'll get there eventually. So... Quick trigger warning, this case is extremely gruesome, which I know sounds really stupid because it's a true crime podcast and every case we covered is gruesome. And I feel like if you're listening to a true crime podcast, you don't really need a trigger warning, which is why we usually don't do it. But trust me, this one is gnarly and we'll likely discuss the graphic details. So if that's not your cup of tea and you want to bail out now, that's cool. No judgment if you decide to pull the nope lever and get the fuck out of Dodge now. Which Amanda now knows what that means because of me. It's like get the heck out of Dodge. But anyway. Who is Dodge and why were they there? (laughs) 
Exactly. Honestly, I don't know. Exactly. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I can't believe you've never heard anybody use that phrase. I use it all the time. Anyways. Um, so, like, yeah, if you want to, like, just bail out, totally get it. I do. Um, I just wanted to warn everybody before we get started. we're all here because we can handle it. Yeah. Um, so, hang on to your butts. Please keep all arms, legs, and personal belongings inside the ride at all times. And lastly, if you feel sick, please use the baggies provided to you. Where? <laughs> Where? So, without further ado, let's dive in, shall we? So, Joel Michael Guy Jr. was born in 1988 to parents Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy. His family all called him Joel Michael. I'm assuming that's because they weren't a fan of JJ, which, like, understandable. <laughs> There's some pretty great JJ's, JJ Watts. Oh, that's true. That's true. I didn't think about that. But he does not uh, fit the bill. But go on. Um, Joel also had three older half-sisters from his father's previous marriage. And I'm going to talk about them more as we go through, but I just wanted to kind of lay out. Who's in age? The old, his I don't know exactly how, I think there was a, there's like a, a gap. Between the girls and him? Yeah. Um, and I think I talk about it, um... I want to say that, I'm going to talk about it, but Joel and Lisa met when, so it's three girls, the oldest one and then a set of twins. So their dad met Lisa, their stepmom, when they were, the twins were like three. But I'm not sure how long they were married before um, Joel Michael was born. So at least three years. (laughs) Um, So according to, oh wait, they were married for 31 years. I can do math real quick. Oh, you can? Yeah. I mean, I'm an accountant, so I should be able to. So they were married for 31 years. So they got married in 85, and he was born in 88. So. Quickly after. Well, they were probably like, so the the twins are probably like six when he was born. So that's not like a huge gap. So anyway, according to um, Joel Michael Sr. and Lisa Guy's obituary, they, quote, were married for 30 years and true soulmates. They both had a great sense of humor, were loving and kind-hearted, and the most compassionate people. They were the loves of each other's lives. They enjoyed anything that involved being together, which included being in nature and on the water. They loved their kids and adored their grandchildren. End quote. Mm, My heart. And I'll get more into, like, how their loved ones describe them later, but I thought that was, like, a super, like, sweet description, so I wanted to include that. So, November of 2016 was going to be the guys' last Thanksgiving in their home on Golden View Lane in Knoxville, Tennessee. The guys had plans to move shortly after Thanksgiving. Joel Sr. had been a contractor um, who designed piping systems as his career, and Lisa was a disbursement specialist for Jacobs Engineering, and they had decided they were ready to retire. So they listed their house for sale, and they actually had a contract on their home when they were murdered. The couple had planned to buy Joel Sr.'s family home in Sergoinsville, Tennessee, which is about 100 miles in an hour and 40 minutes from their home in Knoxville. Um, Joel Sr. had already made arrangements with his sisters to purchase their parents' home, and this was going to be where Joel Sr. and Lisa spent their retirement. So, like, when I said this was going to be their last Thanksgiving in Knoxville, like, I didn't mean to be, like, that's not meant to be dramatic, because um, it really was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the family had plans to get together for Christmas 2016 at their new home in Sergoinsville, Tennessee. Which I think that's really sweet that he was like going to buy the house where he grew up to oh. retire in. So, um, I just want to take a second and say how absolutely heartbreaking this is. Like, this couple 
who were like the sweetest and they were like the cutest and I showed you their pictures earlier um they had so many plans for their future like they had finally made it to their golden years their retirement mm-hmm. um you know like I said they had plans to move to their new home and enjoy each other's company and just enjoy growing old together maybe do some traveling and to me that's what most couples dream of you know like the day they can retire and not have to worry about the everyday stresses of life and bitch I'm well but like the guys were there like they had made it you know but as you already know all their hopes dreams and plans for the future were abruptly taken away and as if that wasn't bad enough it was their own son who had taken it away from them yeah spoiler alert the guys were murdered by their only son joel michael guy jr like what (laughs) Like, that is just incomprehensible to me. Like, I, like I, I can't even fathom being able to do something so heinous and horrible to my own parents. Well, much to anyone, but, like, much less your own parents. So, like, I just don't get it, you know? Like I've mentioned, um, you know, this murder happened four years ago, almost four years ago, but it's been, in, it's been very active recently. Joel Michael Guy Jr. was not put on trial by the state of Tennessee until September 28th, 2020. Yeah, like literally a couple months ago. And you guys, I found the entire trial online. Like, this is not a drill. Um, There was videos of the entire trial that were uploaded to YouTube by the Law and Crime Network, and your girl was so excited. (laughs) It ended up being almost 22 hours of video footage, And I legit watched most of the videos. (laughs) So most, if not all, of the information I'm going to tell you guys today is directly from these videos. Um, And that was legit my dream because, you know, I'm always nervous about using different articles online because you don't know, you know, what's accurate and what's not sometimes. You know, it's hard to tell. Right. Um, So, you know, I was glad that, you know, I was able to watch the trial and ensure that I included information that was presented in court. You know, because I found the videos of the trial, I thought I would do things a little bit differently than I normally do. And I think I'm going to structure this episode and kind of follow the trial. Like, just going to go through the facts in the order that they were presented by the defense, I mean, by the prosecution at the trial. Um, And I I just felt this was the best way to make use of the information that I gathered from watching the trial. So we might jump around a little bit. Like, it's not going to be in like a, like our typical setup, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but... Let's dive in. So, as I already mentioned, the trial of Joel Michael Guy Jr. began on September 28, 2020, and in her opening statements, Knox County Assistant District Attorney Leslie Nazios went for the jugular. Good. Yeah. She started out by outlining the horrendous injuries that Joel Michael Guy Sr. suffered, and I won't go too much into it now, because like I'm going to talk about it more later, but just know it was horrible and gruesome. And once she finished describing the injuries Joel Michael Guy Sr. received, she launched into the injuries sustained by Lisa Guy. Lisa's injuries were just as, if not more, horrifying than Joel Sr.'s. ADA Nazios basically outlined the facts of the case and laid out all the evidence that the prosecution would present during the trial that would prove that the defendant, Joel Michael Guy Jr., callously murdered and dismembered his parents. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's the first time I've mentioned the dismemberment. So yeah, that's... ADA Nazios described what police found at the Knoxville home that day and as, and I quote, a diabolical stew of human remains. 
that's going to make more sense once I get into the details of the case. So, like, you know, hang on to your butts. <laughs> um, but when ADA Nazio said this, Joel Michael Guy Jr. picked up a pen and started taking notes. It, it kind of makes me wonder if he was like, whoa, like, why did I think of that description? And then he was, like, furiously writing things down. Like, it made me sick because, like, he had just sat there with, like, no emotion, just, like, a blank face. But when she said that, he kind of, like, perked up and, like, sat up and then, like, furiously wrote it down. And it just made me, like... Do we know what he wrote? I don't know what he wrote, but it's, like, it was weird that that's what she said. A diabolical stew of human remains. And then he's, like, oh, you know? But anyway, um, back to ADA Nazio's uh, opening statements. She also showed several pictures as she walked through the facts of the case that we've proven throughout the trial like simply put she just she went ham like she's a badass bitch and i love her um she literally gave her opening statement with very little help from her notes like she just went through the gruesome details of the entire case from memory and maybe that's just me being ignorant of actual trials and like how familiar lawyers have to be with the case like maybe um, that's yeah, normal no, they have to know okay um but like i was really impressed <laughs> And her opening statement lasted, like, 59 minutes. Jesus. Yeah. And I thought her opening statement was, like, super effective. And, like, it drove home, like, the main points or evidence that they were going to, that they expected to prove. On the other hand, Joel Michael Guy Jr.'s attorney, John Halstead, only gave a two-minute opening statement where he thanked everyone for showing up during the pandemic, which, because, like I said, it was recently. Um... Then he basically explained that the Constitution requires that for someone to be found guilty, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. No shit, Sherlock. Let me tell you, I've been on jury selection many times, and they pound that in, that phrase, into your really? head. Yes. Oh, okay. So it's like, him saying that was like, okay. At the trial, yeah. Like, we fucking know. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's why I was like. They reiterate and reiterate it to you, like. Yeah. But like, I'm not exaggerating. That is literally all he said. Like, I, I actually toyed with the idea of playing his opening statement just for dramatic effect because I'm like, really? Like, we know. Like, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, that's... He probably knows that your boy got a shot. Yeah, so he was just... Anyway, but I decided against including the clip. But I am going to include some other clips. So, um, I know this is me jumping around a little bit, and I apologize, but ADA Nazios also laid out a brief timeline during her opening statement as follows... So on November 23rd, 2016, Joel Michael Guy Jr. made the 643 mile and approximately nine hour, 20 minute trip from where he lived at the Oakbrook Apartments on Nicholson Drive in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That's where Baton, that's where Louisiana comes in. Um, so he made that drive to his parents' home on Golden View Lane in Knoxville, Tennessee. And when I say 643 miles, 9 hours and 20 minutes, that's exact. Like, that's from the apartments to the address. What day of his was house. Thanksgiving that year? The 24th. So, like, he, he drove up on the Wednesday. Okay. Um, yeah, but like I said, that's not an approximation. Like, generally, you know, we don't always have the exact addresses, but in this case, I did. So, you know, me bringing the facts. <laughs> but anyways, um, so the next day, November 24th, 2016 was Thanksgiving Day, and the family gathered together at the guy's Knoxville home to celebrate the holiday. And uh, so Joel Michael Guy Sr., Lisa Guy, Joel Michael Guy Jr., Michelle Tyler, who is one of um, Guy Sr.'s daughters from a prior marriage, 
Um, she's one of the twins that I mentioned. Um, her boyfriend and then her three young children, they all spent the day together. So um, his other two sisters weren't able to, to come that day. Well, yeah, because they were all planning to get together for Christmas. So the next day, um, November 25th, 2016, Joel Sr., Lisa, and Joel Jr. drove together to the Sergoinsville, Tennessee home to deliver a boat. Because like I said, he had already agreed with his sisters to purchase the home. So like they were like slowly moving things mm -hmm. into the, the new house. And they had been like cleaning and, you know, just slowly moving things. So on November 26th, 2016, which is the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So we know that Lisa God was alive shortly after noon um, that day because she made a shopping trip in Knoxville, which is evidenced by a Walmart receipt that was found in her purse with the date of November 26, 2016 at 1218 p.m. And we also know Joel Jr. was also in Knoxville this day because he also made a shopping trip in Knoxville around 3.30 p.m., which is also evidenced by receipts, which I love this because it was the literal embodiment of our Queen Whitney's iconic, I want to see the receipts quote. <laughs> but remember these receipts because we're going to circle back. So the prosecution believes that Joel Sr. and Lisa Guy were murdered sometime between the late afternoon and evening hours of November 26, 2016. So the next day, the Sunday, November 27, 2016, Joel Jr. leaves his parents' home in Knoxville and drove the nine hours and 20 minutes back to his Baton Rouge, Louisiana apartment near LSU's campus. The following day, the Monday after Thanksgiving, November 28, 2016, the guys' bodies were discovered in their Knoxville home when Knox County Sheriff's Office deputies performed a welfare check after Lisa's boss, Jennifer Whited, grew worried when Lisa didn't show up for work that day. So after that discovery, the police started investigating, interviewing neighbors, notifying next of kin, you know, all your basic steps that you take when you are investigating a murder. And police found out from Michelle Tyler that she was just at the home a few days prior and her half-brother, Joel Michael Guy Jr., was also there. So that same day, on November 28, 2016, um, Detective McCord, who, he was one of the people that responded, and I'll talk more about him later, but they, they had found a lead of a Walmart receipt um, that was found upstairs in um, the bathroom and I'll talk about what was found with it later. So they headed, he went to the Walmart store and the people at the store showed Detective McCord the surveillance footage and he was able um, to obtain the footage and a still image of the person who made that purchase. So it wasn't the receipt that was in her purse? No, the, the it was, receipt. there was another receipt found upstairs. The one that I talked about, um, yeah. The person in that image is eventually identified as Joel Sr. and Lisa's only son, Joel Michael Guy Jr. And he appeared to have a bandaged hand in the picture, and he was buying medical supplies. Mm -hmm. So police also learned that Joel Jr. headed back to Baton Rouge on November 27th. And so police obtained an arrest warrant based upon this and everything else that they found in the home. Mm -hmm. And so the Knox... Knox County Sheriff's Office requested the help of several law enforcement agencies in Louisiana, including the Louisiana State Police, the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office, and the FBI. So Joel Michael Guy Jr. was arrested on Tuesday, November 29, 2016, as he was attempting to enter his Hyundai Sonata at the Oak Brook apartment complex in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
Um, so that was pretty quick. Uh-huh. But you'll see why it was so quick. Because the dude's an idiot. So subsequent to his arrest, police in Baton Rouge performed a search of Joel Guy Jr.'s apartment. However, nothing that was seized during this search was admissible in court because the judge ruled that authorities in Baton Rouge did not show a direct link between Joel Michael Guy Jr. and the murders in Knox County. So he basically ruled they didn't have enough probable cause to perform a search. Like they got a warrant. It just didn't say. It was not specific to exactly. What yeah, it, it wasn't was just cut and dry. We need. Yeah. It was just an arrest warrant, or was it a search warrant? Uh, well, um, Knox County Sheriff's Office had issued the arrest warrant, but the Baton Rouge Police issued the search warrant on his apartment because it was in their jurisdiction. Yeah. But like I like you. He didn't it, link it to. Yeah, the they didn't link it to the murders, and in order for that to be brought into trial. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, there has to be that linkage. Negligent. But, yeah. So, items seized during the search of the apartment that were not allowed at trial included DNA swabs collected from Joel Guy Jr.'s bathtub drain, his clothing, computers, and various electronics, a 12 gauge shotgun, and receipts for various household chemicals and cleaners found at the crime scene. Like, there was proof that he had bought some chemicals and stuff that they found at the house in Knoxville. And I know we try not to bash law enforcement and I'm thankful because, spoiler alert, it didn't actually really affect this case like in a drastic way, but like do fucking better. Like that could have been so bad. Mm -hmm. You know, like what if they would have needed that evidence? Like thankfully they didn't. They had a strong enough case otherwise, but like you never know. Yeah, and he's a freaking monster. So, after the opening statements, they called um, a few of the family members to the stand um, just to kind of, I think, so they were trying to, you know, um, set a narrative and how the, like, get an idea of how the guys were and, you know, how what, how they lived their life and what their relationship was like with their son. Mm-hmm. So the first witness was Robin White, who is Joel Guy Sr.'s sister. And according to Miss White, her brother told her that he was retiring soon and moving and that he had cut his son off from financial support. By the way, (laughs) Joel Sr. and Lisa were completely supporting Joel Jr., who was a 28-year-old man Uh living in Baton Rouge. He had... He had like been in and out of LSU, but like he never got a degree. But they were still, they were, he's never had, he never had a job. So they were retiring and I guess they sat down. Cause I mean, you know, when you're retired, you're on a fixed income. Mm-hmm. So I guess they sat down with all their bills, like even down to like groceries and like how much beer or cigarettes mm-hmm. they could buy. And they were like, we just, we can't afford to, to keep supporting him. Right. So that's kind of what, I think 88 Nazios is trying to portray here that a lot of the family members knew. Yeah, like as a a motive or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, according to Robin White, Joel Guy's sister, um, Lisa had planned to cut Joel Jr. off on Christmas, which is when he was supposed to come visit, but he came for Thanksgiving instead. So they're thinking that they had the conversation on Thanksgiving instead of Christmas. So he didn't know prior to that? He says that he didn't. And I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't either. I mean... Because they were already going to be in their new home by then. 
Like, why? By Christmas? Yeah, like, and, and you don't decide to retire overnight. Like, that's a pretty arduous process, like, trying to figure out everything. So, like, I feel like... A liar. Yeah. Um, so then they called Angela Crane, who is Joel Guy Sr.'s daughter. Um, she's one of the twins. Um, her and Michelle are twins. Um, and so according to Miss Crane, her father had told her that he was going to cut off Joel Michael and that Joel was... Time out. If all the other people knew, there's no way it was a secret to him. Exactly. Exactly. And her father even told her that Joel Michael was going to have to, quote, stand on his own two feet, end quote. Which, you're a 28-year-old man. Right. Like, you... I mean... <laughs> So, according to Ms. Crane, this conversation happened around the middle of October in 2016. And Ms. Crane was asked by the defense if um, this conversation was between herself, her father, and Lisa Guy. And she responded, you know, it, it was really like an ongoing family conversation. And it was like common knowledge. Right. Um, and she continued that her father had previously cut Joel Michael off years before. And the only reason Lisa was still working was to support Joel Michael. What? Yeah, like she didn't have to work because Joel Sr. made enough money, she didn't have to have a job. Mm-hmm. And Miss Crane stated that the sole reason Lisa worked was to provide her entire paycheck to Joel Michael so that That's he didn't sick. have to work. Yeah. No, like I said, let me remind you, this was a 28-year-old man. Can you like what? All right. I mean, I I, I get it. It's upsetting. Chill out table. Like I I don't know. I guess that that goes back to like there's no bounds to a mother's love, but I mean, whew. So that also could like I say this all the time. They got some spoiled ass kids out here, and he's obviously one of them. Yeah. So then they called Renee Charles, who was Joel Guy Senior's other sister, um, and according to Miss Charles, Joel Senior told her a week prior to Thanksgiving 2016 that he and his wife planned to have a conversation with Joel Michael at Christmas, that once they retired and moved to Sigourneville, Tennessee, that Joel Michael would have to get a job and support himself because the guys wouldn't have, you know, enough income, so they couldn't continue to support him. Mm-hmm. And Ms. Charles stated that she had this conversation with Joel Sr. and Lisa and that they both agreed. So it wasn't just like, you know, the dad was just saying it and Lisa didn't, like, they agreed. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't afford to do it anymore. Um... So then they, uh, then they called Michelle Tyler, um, Angela's twin, to the stand. And according to Ms. Tyler, Joel Sr. and Lisa had a conversation with her at the end of October 2016 that once they retired, they could no longer afford to support Joel Michael anymore and he would have to get a job. And Ms. Tyler was also present on Thanksgiving Day with the family. And she testified that you could just feel the tension in the house that day. And she kind of wondered why. And then she said that she and her father went out onto the porch on Thanksgiving Day, and her dad told her that he and Lisa had spoken to Joel Michael that day and informed him that we can no longer support you anymore. So she felt like that was the source of the tension, you know. So the defense asked all of those witnesses if Joel Michael Guy Jr. was present for any of those conversations, like discussing his parents cutting him off and... Mm -hmm. I assume this was trying to prove that... He didn't know. Right. Like, although they were... These conversations all obviously happened, that he wasn't aware. Mm-hmm. And the defense attorney argued that these facts are irrelevant if Joel Guy Jr. did not know and wasn't aware of his parents' intentions. And he also referred to these statements as hearsay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the judge basically was like, not so fast, and said that most of the conversations were not hearsay because they could be used to establish motive Mm -hmm. 
And he continued by explaining that conversations that took place outside of the court, can some can be allowable, but some aren't. In summary, basically statements made outside of the court about things that had already happened in the past were inadmissible. However, conversations about someone's intentions to do something in the future are okay. So basically, like, um, Michelle saying that her dad told her that they, in fact, did tell him on Thanksgiving, uh-huh. would, that the jury was told to disregard that comment. Uh-huh. But all the other ones about their intentions were fine, which is weird. Because that's, like, hard proof. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess hearsay, like, you know, there's no, it's not like there was a video of him telling her that, you know. But, yeah. So just a little sidebar here, but. The cameras kept showing Joel Michael Guy Jr. during the trial, and he's like ugh, one of the creepiest, slimiest, like almost like smug, you know? And I think I sent you some pictures as I was watching. Like, he's just like, just no emotion, just like blank, like didn't even care. Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't seem to show any remorse. Like, I don't know. Because he's fucking spoiled. Right. So, next they called Jennifer Whited, um, who is. Um, Lisa's boss at Jacobs Engineering and she was her title was a federal contracts manager Jennifer's was and according to Miss White's testimony Lisa Guy turned in a written notice on November 21st 2016 and her last day of work was scheduled to be December 2nd 2016 so the following Friday after Thanksgiving well so that was her last week yeah that Monday would have been her last week so Ms. White had stated that in October or November of 2016, she and Ms. Guy had a conversation about Ms. Guy and her husband's plans to retire soon and that the couple was not going to be able to continue supporting their son, Joel Michael, once they did retire. So I feel like it's been pretty well established by this right. point that so they were going to cut him off. Now. Right. And he didn't. Exactly. Um, so per Ms. White's testimony, Lisa seemed excited prior to the Thanksgiving holiday, but she said she also seemed somewhat preoccupied because there was so much going on and so many changes soon. So Ms. White had stated that she knew of Lisa's plans for the Thanksgiving holidays, um, that she was excited because her kids were coming into town and they, she was just going to spend the day you know, with her kids and her husband. And according to Ms. Whited, on Monday, November 28th, 2016, around 7.15 a.m., she noticed Lisa wasn't at work, and she usually came in at 7. So not only was that unusual and completely out of character for Lisa to not show up and just not call, it was supposed to be her last week of work, you know? So, like, why would she not show up if something wasn't wrong? Right. Um, Also, none of her coworkers had heard from Lisa that morning either. So Miss White had started texting and calling Lisa, and she even started calling Joel Sr., but she never got an answer. And she said that Lisa would always call her immediately, like if she wasn't able to come in. So she was like really worried. So she called a non-emergency line of the Knox County Sheriff's Office to request a welfare check. Mm-hmm. Um, and the phone call was played during the trial, so I'm gonna play it really quick now.
Golden View Lane. My name is Jennifer Whited, W-H-I-T-E-D. And what company are you with? Jacobs Engineering. And what's a good comment for you guys? It is a... Okay, what's the employee's name? Lisa Guy, G-U-Y. Her husband's name is Joel, J-O-E-L. Should he be there too? Does he live with her? Yes, he does. Okay. And they do have a, a dog named Jake. I think he's a big baby. Okay. How old is she, do you know? She is in her, oh, I think, late 50s. No, I mean, she has high blood pressure, but that's all, that's all that I know of. And I know that their house is for sale, and they are moving, and she is leaving our company, but that's supposed to be Friday, and this definitely isn't like her just not to show up. wanted to play that real quick because you know sometimes I like to put those in there um I don't she she seems so nice like she seems so calm like I probably would have been freaking the hell out but you know that's, that's me you. so um so Miss Whited hadn't heard anything from the police about the welfare check and she still couldn't get in touch with Lisa so she called back and asked what they had found and she was told that nothing was found during the welfare check but she was like um no and she told police that this was very unlike Lisa, and she actually had, they had a farewell lunch planned for Lisa that day, like with all her coworkers, and there's no way that, you know, she would have just blown that off, you know, without letting them know. Mm-hmm. Um, so she requested that the police go back and check again, and Miss Whited was told that um, they would speak with a detective and then get back with her. 20 or 30 minutes later, um, she received a call from a detective, you know, asking for more information, and um, she repeated everything to the detective, but she said she didn't hear that the guy's bodies were found um, in that home until that night. So I don't, and I don't know if they called her or if she, like, saw it on the news or something. While she was on the stand, the prosecution entered into evidence Lisa Guy's life insurance policy that she had through Jacobs Engineering through her job. And they pointed out that the beneficiaries on Lisa's policy were 50% to her husband, Joel Guy Sr., and 50% to Joel Guy, Joel Guy Jr. And the policy was for $500,000. And the defense lawyer brought up um, the policy and asked Miss um, Whited whether she personally informed Joel Guy Jr. or if she was aware if the life insurance companies informed somebody when they're made a beneficiary. Miss White had answered no. She, you know, she did not personally inform Joel Guy Jr. and she was also not aware of a policy where the life insurance company would have informed him either. Yeah, that's um, not really common. Yeah, but again, 
This is the defense attempting to plant reasonable doubt that Joel Guy Jr. wasn't aware of certain, you know, certain things that, that would have given him a motive. Um, I'm just gonna say right now, that's complete bullshit. He knew, he fucking knew. He knew he was the beneficiary. He knew exactly the amount of the life insurance and he knew his parents were gonna cut him off. Anyway, so um, they called Angela Crane to the stand again, um, one of Joel Guy Sr.'s daughters. Um, so she testified that on November 17, 2016, the guys had accepted an offer on their home and they had until December 13th, 2016 to move out. I guess that was their closing day. So at the time of Thanksgiving 2016, the guys were in the process of packing their home in order to sell it in a few weeks. And Angela's second testimony like shattered my heart. ADA Nazios asked her to describe her relationship with her father, Joel Sr., and her stepmom, Lisa. And so Ms. Crane testified that she's now a civil engineer. And she said that her dad is the reason that she became an engineer. Um, she stated that growing up, her dad would always show her blueprints of projects he was working on, you know, because he was a piping designer and a contractor, and that she was always super fascinated with it. So she said he really encouraged encouraged her interest in that, and she became a civil engineer thanks to his encouragement. So Miss um, Crane stated that she was born and raised in Kingsport, Tennessee, but in April 2016, she went to upstate New York for her job, and she's been there ever since. Um, and according to Miss Crane, her father met Lisa when she and her twin sister Michelle were three, um, like I said earlier, and Lisa's always been like a second mother to them for as long as she can remember. And she said that she had actually planned to go home to visit her dad and stepmom for Thanksgiving. However, she decided she would just wait and wait and go home for Christmas because she could spend a whole week with them. Mm-hmm. But she never got that chance. Like, that's so sad, you know? Like, I'm sure that haunts her, you know? But Miss Crane stated that she spoke to her father almost daily and that the family had a group text that included Miss Crane, her twin sister, her dad, and Lisa. And she said that they would just text back and forth and, like, banter because her dad was really funny. And she also described Lisa as one of her best friends. And I don't know, that that just, like, got me. Because, you know, that's what you that's what you kind of want as, like, a stepmom, you know? And I was researching this while I was sitting in a doctor's office room waiting for my husband because he was having a procedure done. And I was sitting there crying in the, in the doctor's office. Um, and I'll be honest with you, the main reason it got me is because it reminded me of the relationship that you have with your dad and your stepmom, mm-hmm. Amanda. Like, it almost even reminded me of, like, my relationship with them a little bit, too, you know? Because... Mm-hmm. For listeners who don't know, Amanda and I have been friends for, what, like 15 years now? Like half of our lives almost? Um, So, like, her dad and her stepmom have legitimately taken me in and accepted me as their own. Like, my kids call Amanda's parents Papa and Mimi. (laughs) And that's not even what they're called, but their own grandkids. Yeah, but, like, my kids will FaceTime Amanda's stepmom, even when Amanda's not at my house. So, like... They're really some of the best, most amazing people I've ever met. And the way that Joel's daughter spoke about, like, him and Lisa just really, it made me think of your parents, Mm -hmm. you know? But I'll stop before I cry on the podcast. (laughs) Um, So next, um, ADA Nazios called Shandice Fink to the stand. So she's the oldest daughter of Joel Guy from his previous relationship. Um, Miss Fink also testified that she spoke to or texted her father almost every single day. Mm -hmm. 
And ADA Nazios asked Ms. Fink if she heard from her father the last Saturday or Sunday in November of 2016. And she responded that she hadn't, which was odd because that Sunday was her birthday. Like, just when I thought it couldn't get any sadder, it did. Mm -hmm. Like, she said that was odd because it was the very first birthday her dad had ever missed in her entire life. Like, that's so sad. Like, for the rest of her life, she's going to associate her dad and her stepmom's death anniversary with her birthday. Mm -hmm. Like, that makes me so sad. Like, they weren't actually killed on her birthday, but it was like a day before. Mm -hmm. Sad. So, when asked about the relationship between Joel Sr. and Lisa, almost every single witness talked about how in love they were and how they were, like, just meant to be together, how they just fit. Uh Um, And most of the witnesses also mentioned how much Joel Sr. and Lisa were looking forward to retiring and just enjoying each other's company. It's really sad. Um, So then Michelle Tyler, um, Joel Sr.'s daughter and the twin sister of Angela Crane, testified again. And she described Joel Sr. and Lisa Guy as her best friends. And she stated that she spoke to her dad at least weekly, if not daily. And she testified that growing up, she and her twin sister, Angela, would spend a month during the summers with her dad and Lisa in Louisiana. So I'm not sure how long they lived there, but I do know at one point the guys lived in Luling, Louisiana. Right. It really struck me because that's where my husband was living when we met. Mm -hmm. So, like, I got full body chills reading that because it's like, you know, I wonder, like, when they moved. Because when I met my husband and he was living in Luling, they possibly could have been still living there, you know? In 2013. Mm-hmm. Because so, I, I don't know when they moved right. to back to Tennessee. But like, in, are, were, they, were they from here? I think Lisa was. See, they didn't talk too, too much about yeah, that. Yeah, that's the connection. Yeah, I think Lisa was from here. Cause, um, because the daughters were born in... The daughters are born and raised in Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think Lisa was... From here, I don't know how they met. Right. Um, they didn't really talk about that, but um, I guess they lived in Louisiana at some point. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to talk about him eventually, but Lisa's brother, his last name is Madair, which is a very Louisiana last name. And I'm going to put a clip of him of him talking, and you can tell he is That's 100% Lisa's from Louisiana. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I'm context clues, I'm assuming she's from Louisiana. Yeah. Back to Michelle's testimony, she said she always loved going to her dad and Lisa's for the summer because Lisa was the type of wife and mother that you always wish and hope for. Like, she always kept the cabinets stocked with food. She always had dinner cooked when Joel Sr. returned home from work at the end of the day. And she always, like, kept candy in the house for the kids. Um, Because, you know, Michelle says she came from a single parent. Like, her mom was a single mother, so, like, she really... They were really poor, and they couldn't afford even, like, meat at every meal. So, like... A lot of meals, it was, like, pasta and stuff like that. And she said, like, Lisa always had, like, meat with every meal. And I guess I didn't grow up that way. So, like, that was just, like... Kids. Yeah, kids. Yeah. So that's why she loved going over there, you know. And... um, Your girl wanted some groceries. Right. And um, she even compared the way Lisa greeted Joel Sr. when he got home as the perfect, like, Walton-type family. She continued by saying that she always wanted to be just like Lisa when she grew up, so much so that Miss Tyler's first engagement ring was an exact replica of Lisa's. Aww. I know. And she stated that she wanted to be the mom that Lisa was, and she said she basically wanted like to be her, you know? And um, she said she, her father, and Lisa maintained a close relationship throughout her entire life. Um, And like I said already, she was also there on Thanksgiving 2016. 
Um, and she said she was there from like 10.30 or 11 in the morning until like 8 or 8.30 that night. And she said that day was kind of different because usually on holidays when the whole family was together and just talking, telling stories, you know, like you do on holidays. Mm -hmm. And Joel Michael was always in his room by himself, not talking to anybody, not socializing. But it was different that day. Immediately when Miss Tyler and her three sons arrived, Joel Michael was like interacting with her kids, which she thought was weird because she's like, I'm pretty sure he didn't even know their names. Like they weren't close. He wasn't that stellar uncle. Right. Like he wasn't close to them, but that was his choice. That's how he wanted things. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to have a relationship with them. So she found that weird because she was like, he doesn't ever talk to my kids. Like, like he's trying to be Uncle Lee now. Right. He even started, like, to give away some of his childhood toys that Lisa had kept to her kids, which she found weird because she's like, he's never given them anything in their entire life. Correct. And according to Miss Tyler's testimony, her dad always had cameras in the house, and she, she did notice them when she was there on Thanksgiving. However, when she returned to the home after the murders, she noticed that the cameras were missing. Mm-hmm. They were not there anymore. So, Ms. Tyler also testified that she was the executor of her dad's estate upon his death, and in that role, she was in charge of trying to recoup any charges on her dad's credit card that took place after his death. Mm-hmm. So, she provided a death certificate to different vendors, and she testified that she was able to recoup all of the funds except $10,000 from Oak Brook Apartment Complex, what? where Joel Michael lived. So, obviously, he's the one who took like the credit cards, they would not, they refused to even entertain the idea of giving her a refund. And they took place after he died. Like, so basically, yeah, so basically I guess how it works is like, say, say I die tomorrow and somebody takes my credit card. It makes purchases. It makes purchases after my death. If you provide the death certificate, they're typically going to refund you because obviously it was not that person and it's fraud. So... Dude, like one. So what did he spend ten thousand dollars on? Rent. Or how? I don't. I don't know how expensive his rent was, but I guess he just paid like a lump sum. I don't know. Like for. So like one, that's theft. Two, that's theft from a dead person. And three, the idiot got arrested, so he can't even quote unquote use so the rent that he paid. They're gonna rent that space to somebody else and double dip. Double dip. Yeah. So like, what the fuck? Like, there's a special place in hell for those assholes who run that apartment complex. I'm sorry. Like, Satan has their name on a spot because that is, like, 10 million kinds of fucked up. You know? Like, what the hell? But anyway, so then Deputy Ballard, they called Deputy Ballard to the stand, and he's the person who performed the first welfare check. Of the not-so-good one? Like yeah. Like, the, the... didn't really do much, yeah. They're okay? Yeah. They, he knocked on the door and nobody, nobody answered, so he left. <laughs> so anyway, um... He testified that when he went, he saw three cars in the driveway. He knocked on the door, rang the doorbell, um, but nobody answered. He went around. They the, were dead, sir. Right. So like he went around the back of the house and he saw a dog house, like outside. So he whistled for the dog, but the dog didn't like come. So he reported that he hadn't found. He left and then reported he hadn't found anything. Um, but our, as we already know, this was not flying with Jennifer's boss, not Jennifer's boss, Lisa's boss, Jennifer, because. She's like, something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, if their cars are all there, you they could hear the dog. Cars? Yes. And you could hear the dog barking. Uh-huh. And Lisa, like, when she said, like, in the 911 he's call, a he's a big baby. Like, they would not have left that dog, uh-huh. you know. 
Um, by the way, his name's Jake, and he's fine. By the way, he's okay. It said Jake. Yeah, it said Jake in the. And I think um, I forget where I read it, but I think one of Lisa's friends has him. And still, so. Anyway, so patrol deputy Ballard returned to the guy's residence um, again with Detective McCord and so two other law enforcement. He he accompanied them back. Yeah. Okay. And there's actually body cam footage that they showed. So just like Deputy Ballard, Detective McCord noticed that there were three vehicles in the driveway. There was two cars and one truck. Detective McCord also noticed the for sale sign in the front yard, but when he approached the front door of the home, he didn't see the lockbox, the realtor lockbox that generally hangs uh-huh. on the front door. And he thought that was kind of weird because, you know, he was house hunting and he was like, why is there not a lockbox? I mean, but you have to have... They already had a contract on it, huh? Yeah, but it still should have been there. Yeah. And you'll see that's that it's relevant, I promise. Um, so Detective McCord knocked, identified himself as law enforcement, but he didn't get an answer. And, you know, just like Deputy Ballard hadn't gotten one. But when Detective McCord looked into the home through the glass of the front door, you know, they had like the, the uh, not stained glass, but, you know, like the yeah. decorative glass, but you could still see inside. Uh-huh. He saw... Um, something kind of odd. He saw groceries just sitting in like the entryway of the house as if somebody had gone grocery shopping and set them down there, mm-hmm. but left them. Mm-hmm. And he was like, uh, yeah, like that's not right. Like, I don't know, maybe his spidey senses were going off, but he was like, something's not right. Mm-hmm. So he went around the back of the house and they actually had to jump a fence. Mm-hmm. And watching these people, this detective in a suit jumped the fence. Mm-hmm was hilarious he noticed that the doorknob on the back door was gone yeah deputy ballard sucks yeah yeah like there's just no doorknob like you can see into the house through the hole right um and then when he he starts like thinking he's like wait the front doorknob now like you know when you see something and then it it, something else clicks the front doorknob looked out of place like he said there was no lockbox and then when they go look back there's scratches like someone had pried Uh the doorknob off Basically, like, they took the one off the back door and replaced it on the front door. Oh, because you can't take the lockbox yeah. off the back key. Yeah. So, um, this led Detective McCord to conclude that, you know, like I said, the doorknob from the back door had been taken off and put on the front door. And as he was looking through the hole of the back door, he, like, felt heat coming out, and he smelled like a, like some weird smell. Mm-hmm. So he then heard a dog barking inside. So after all these observations, he felt there was a need for them to enter the residence because something is happening, like something's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he even contacted the realtor to see if he or she knew a way if they could get in because, you know, the doors were locked. And the realtor suggested that they check the vehicles to see if there was a garage door opener. What do you know? There was. Um, so they opened the garage and the officers made entry into the home through the garage. Um, but immediately when they walked into the garage, they felt heat, like uh, immense heat. And they smelled like a weird chemical smell. Mm-hmm. So- Was the heater on? I, I mean, I'm, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna, I was literally about to get there. Before entering the home, they knocked on the interior door in the garage. The connecting. Yeah, like from the garage into the house and, you know, knocked Knox County law enforcement, Knox County Sheriff's Office, whatever. And when no one answered, they entered the home through that door. 
Um, and they began clearing the home, you know, the process where officers go into each room, announce themselves, and um, assess the situation to determine if there's any danger. Because let's be honest, in a situation like this, with what little information they were working with, they had no idea what they were about to walk into. Every, yeah. Every uh, entry. Right. So there was body cam footage of this too, and they showed it at the trial, and I watched it. And the first thing I noticed was, as the officers are like entering the entering the house, it's just it's ugh. the dog wasn't barking. He was like howling, like like he was in pain. You know, like it wasn't just like a bark. You mm-hmm. know. And it was just like upsetting listening to that poor dog whine. Like I can only imagine what he heard during the course of the murders. Cause like, you know, dogs like feel things, you know, like, uh-huh. ugh. but anyway, officers entered the home uh, through the garage door, which led into the kitchen. And as they're moving through the home, they're hollering police, police department, Knox County Sheriff's office. And one of the officers says, it's, you know, it's really hot in here. And just to give you an idea of how hot it actually was, Detective McCord noticed that the thermostat was set to heat and the temperature was set in the 90s. Jesus Christ. Hard pass on that. Actually, in the forensics walkthrough video, you can see that the upstairs thermostat was set to 95 degrees. I didn't even know they go that hot. I know, right? Like, what? I didn't, why is that even a setting? As he walked through the downstairs of the home, he also noticed a small space heater that was plugged in and on full blast. Like why? Like cause having a freaking thermostat set basically to Satan's butt crack wasn't enough. So Detective McCord and the officers moved from the kitchen to the dining room where they noticed weapons on the dining room table, boxes of ammunition on the floor, um, tools on the dining room table, a screwdriver, a doorknob lock set. And in the foyer is where he saw those bags from Walmart with groceries inside of them. Um, the ones that he saw from outside, and they included things like lunch meat, ice cream, bacon, breakfast sausage, and beer. And I don't know about you, but I'm 100% not going to just leave ice cream sitting in my house without putting it in the freezer, you know? And then 95 degrees. Yeah. Also, wasting good ice cream is is like a cardinal sin, so that was not normal. And beer, like, you're not just going to leave beer out, you know? So my point is... If Detective McCord wasn't alarmed before, obviously he was, but if he wasn't, he was definitely alarmed now because who leaves that kind of stuff out? Um, so the officers then moved to the stairway because, you know, um, there's like the entry where the groceries were. The, there's a bathroom over to the right, which they didn't find anything in that bathroom, but then there's the stairs to go upstairs. It's a two-story home. Um, as they're moving up the stairway, Detective McCord sees blood on the wall and he originally tells everybody that they need to back out. Mm-hmm. But then he asks if anyone has gloves, and Deputy Ballard responds that he does. So Detective McCord grabs them and puts them on because they, they needed to finish clearing the house, but he needed gloves when he saw, you know, the blood, which, hey, good on you because mm-hmm. um, the officers continue clearing the rooms, and they see more blood, and all you hear on the body cam is somebody saying, oh, my God, over and over, and then... The officers entered one of the bedrooms upstairs, and you hear someone say, quote, there's fucking hands, end quote. Yeah, you heard me right. The officers looked down the hallway, like from the stairs and into a room at the end of the hallway, and saw a pair of severed hands on the carpet. What the fuck? So 
after seeing all this, they finished clearing the upstairs, but then Detective McCord, you know, was like, no, like we need to, you know, <laughs> we need to back out and exit the home and call for backup. So they went out um, the same way they came in through the, you know, garage and he told them, you know, don't touch anything. So as if all this wasn't horrible enough, when they returned to the kitchen as they're exiting the home, they lifted the lid of a pot that was on the stove, um, which was like a big gumbo, well, we would call it gumbo pot, but like a big stock pot. Uh And so they lifted the lid with a gloved hand before anybody starts hollering at us, and they find a human head in the pot still simmering. Wow. And the stove was still on. So the head would later be identified as belonging to Lisa Guy. So the officers exited the home, called for backup forensics, you know, the whole nine yards. The crime scene was so toxic, gruesome, and spread out that it took authorities in hazmat suits two full days to process the scene and collect all of the evidence. So so then Officer Sandy Campbell with the Knox County Sheriff's Department Forensics Unit testified because she responded um, as, you know, uh, what is that called? CSI? Processing the scene. Yeah. So, on November 28, 2016, she was contacted by her supervisor and instructed to respond to the home on Golden View Lane to forensically process the scene. And she responded and started to process the scene, including video footage. Mm -hmm. That's like part of her process. And the prosecution showed the video during the trial. And Officer Campbell, she entered um, the kitchen via the garage where she noticed various items strewn about on the floor of the kitchen, like immediately when you walk in. So she sees on the floor towels, bottles of bleach, a bottle of muriatic acid, and garbage bags. There was a cell phone on the kitchen counter, and there were two wallets on the kitchen table, like open. One appeared to be belonging to a female and one to a male. Also on the kitchen table were a ball-peen hammer, a vice grip, and a woman's purse. Um, she also noted that the stove had a large stockpot on it and was turned on, and the oven was also on. I don't think there was anything in the oven, so I'm not sure if that was just like for heat purposes, because yeah. there wasn't anything in it that I know of. Um, so um, through the kitchen was the formal dining room where Officer Campbell observed the same items on the table that Detective McCord had already seen, you know, the weapons and the, um, the door lock and all that. Um, then through the dining room into the foyer, the video shows the grocery sitting on the floor exactly as I've already described. She then videoed into the living room where you can see the back door that was missing the doorknob. Um, and then off of the living room was a small um, office area that didn't appear to have any forensic evidence in it, but she included it because they have to video the whole thing. Um, the biggest thing I noticed about the office was that the walls were literally covered almost floor to ceiling with like framed family pictures. So it looked just like, you know, your basic family pictures, but it stuck out to me because it just reiterated what I already gathered from the family's testimony that the guys were super family oriented and like super close to all their family. And it, it, you know, broke my heart a little bit. So after video in the living room, Officer Campbell returned to the foyer and proceeded up the staircase where she noticed reddish brown staining that appeared to be blood on the first landing of the stairs, on the walls and on the banister. At the top of the stairs, the video shows bloody clothing, like a, like a pile of bloody clothing, which appeared to be 
um, and what appeared to be a wedding or an engagement ring next to it, a bloody pair of scissors, a bloody knife, and a giant pool of blood. The blood and clothing would eventually be identified as belonging to Lisa Guy. And next to her clothes, there were empty, um, let's see. Next to her clothes, there were three empty tubs of sewer line cleaner and an empty bottle of drain opening solution. As she entered the master bedroom, the video shows a bunch of like random items on the floor that look as if they hadn't even been used. There was um, a bag of clothes, a work light, a sledgehammer, portable heater that like clamps onto something, um, face masks like you would use during painting, a blender, a box of latex gloves, black garbage bags, jugs of food grade hydrogen peroxide, jugs of liquid fire. And when I first read this, I was like, what the fuck is liquid fire? <laughs> so I consulted my BFF, Google, and I found out that according to the products listing on Amazon, quote, liquid fire provides professional results, cleaning drain pipes in sinks, tubs, shower stalls, plus septic tanks and laterals. As you pour liquid fire into clogged or slow running drain, it reacts instantly creating heat. It works faster and more effectively than most other popular cleaners and is more economical, end quote. I am disturbed. Like it reacts and creates, creates heat. Like imagine what it would do to a body. Keep that in mind. Cause so back to what was found in the master bedroom. The weirdest of it all was a pile of TY Beanie Babies. The ones from the 90s that we all swore was gonna be worth money. Um, the bed was still made and there was plastic sheeting draped over it. Like what is this, Dexter? Um, there was a jewelry box on the dresser that appeared to have been rifled through. Um, the master bath door was open and the floor was covered with the same plastic sheeting. Again, does he think he's Dexter? There was a garden hose connected to the shower head and there was a heater um, running on full blast right next to, like right at the entryway of the um, master bath. There was a knife in the sink and the remains of what appeared to be human beings in some sort of liquid solution in two giant blue totes, uh -huh. like 50 gallon totes. And at this point, Officer Campbell didn't know how many, you know, people or who they were, but she described for the court the contents of the totes in this clip. And it's super short, but the way she said it, I just wanted to record it, you know, put the clip. It was... liquid with pieces of human body in it, in each of them. Both tubs had body parts in them and they were kind of bulging on the sides. I just wanted to include that because like the way she like, you know, paused, it was like, she was like remembering how horrible it was, you know? Um, so in the video, you then see Officer Campbell exit the master bathroom through the master bedroom and make her way down the hallway to the guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. So in the guest bedroom, there was a plugged-in laptop on the bed, a used latex glove was found on the carpet, a backpack was found in a, in a corner of the room, there was a bloody jug of the same food-grade hydrogen peroxide they found in the hallway, a box of latex gloves were found on the dresser, and also on the dresser there were some credit cards that appeared to be issued to Joel Guy Sr. There was blood staining on the carpet and on the sheet on the bed, and the lids that matched the two totes found in the master bathroom were found in that guest bedroom. 
Um, uh, there was a suitcase that included rumpled clothing and a note that mentioned Dan Boudreaux's Ace Hardware in Napoleonville, Louisiana. That was also found in the guest bedroom. And where is Napoleonville in relation to Baton Rouge? Mm-hmm. I think it's across the river. I think it's by Donaldsonville. It's yeah, it's thirty-seven minutes from here. That seems really out of the way for him. Maybe he was going out of the way on purpose. Cause it's between I ten and ninety, like south of Bell Rose. Oh, okay. Almost parallel. Pierre Park. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have to pass through there to get to my grandparents' camp. That's so super out of the way for, for Baton Rouge. Rouge. Maybe that was his intention. No, he doesn't seem too bright. He's yeah. What is that? I don't know. I don't know if he had an infection. So I'm gonna, I'll post this picture that Amanda just pulled up of him. But it's I like, what him. side of his face? It's his yeah, left it's side. His left side of his face is like super like swollen and like bulging out. So like I don't know if he had an infection or what, but he looks drastically different in yeah. that picture from the other pictures. And he, even from there, he looks different in there from when he was arrested, and even from now, like from the trial, he looks so different. So I'm gonna have to post it because so y'all can see what we're talking about. What does he look like now? Um, let's see. I have pictures from the trial. Oh, with the long hair. That was pre-trial. He cut it all off. This is him. That's a girl. Oh, wait, I forgot that was a video. That's him. Ew, he looks like a pedophile. Not even gonna lie. He does. So Officer Campbell found evidence in almost every single room of the house, except for maybe one room that was being used as storage. Because it looked like, you know, they had begun packing for their move, and it was just like a bunch of boxes and things that they were going to move with. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? Because you're making a face. I'm saving some pictures for you. Oh. Um, let's see. So then she moved to the upstairs hall bathroom. So the hall bathroom, according to the video, is a complete mess. There's blood stains everywhere. The door, the floor, the sink, all over the counter. There was also some clothing on the floor with what appeared to be blood staining on them. There were used latex gloves scattered on the counter, as well as a knife, bottles of rubbing alcohol, bottles of hydrogen peroxide, medical tape, first aid supplies, and sitting on a corner ledge or like a shelf of the actual bathtub, there appeared to be some used medical tape with blood on it. Uh Like as if somebody took a shower and I guess took it off in the shower and just set it on the tub, which is gross. Um... The police also found a Walmart bag on the counter that included a receipt for some of the items found in the bathroom with a date and time of November 26, 2016 at 3.35 p.m. That's the receipt That's the that I mentioned came. earlier. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is in Walmart. <laughs> you found it? <laughs> yeah. Walking in. Mm-hmm. So according to the video shown at trial, the Walmart bag also included some cash, like relatively small bills. I think I saw like a $5 bill and a $1 bill. I'm assuming that's a change from the per- purchase at Walmart. But, like, who just throws cash in a Walmart bag, like, with your stuff? Like, I do, but I don't keep it there. But that's only when somebody's standing behind me and they're like... Yeah. Oh, there was also, like, um, you know in the deli at Walmart you can get, like, potato- pre-made, like, potato salad? Ew. There was, like, red skin potato salad, like, in that bag, left on the counter in the bathroom. Ooh, yeah. I nobody's potato salad. Right. So across the hall from the upstairs hall bathroom was the laundry room, which didn't have much evidence in it. 
But that's probably because that's where the poor family dog had been locked up. Where was it locked up? In the laundry room upstairs, which is tiny. Yeah. And I think he's like a pretty decent-sized dog. I don't know what kind of dog he is, but he's a pretty decent size. Like like a, like a a the size of like a lab. Like So he's not a small dog. Mm-hmm. But one silver lining, police were able to rescue the poor dog who had been locked in that laundry room in this literal burning hell of a house. So they arranged for somebody to take care of the dog and for the dog to receive treatment. So that makes my heart happy. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm assuming the dog was rescued prior to like the forensics video being taken because the dog's not in the laundry room and you don't hear that cry anymore. I mentioned the dog being rescued because I figured we needed a little bit of a palate cleanser because what I'm about to talk about now is completely horrifying. So you ready? I was gonna say you wanna grab your drink, but um, we're at the library today, so. Are you good? I got some pictures for you. Oh, okay. So, Officer Campbell walks into another room that's upstairs over the garage, and it appears that it's set up as like an exercise room slash guest room. So this is the room at the very end of the hall upstairs. The room where Detective McCord and the other officers originally performing the welfare check found that set of severed hands. And the video taken by Officer Campbell Campbell shows the hands sitting on the carpet in the room surrounded by tons of blood. Now, the video of the trial blurred out, like, the actual hands, but Officer Campbell, like, explained that that's what was there. Um, There was a pile of clothes with what appeared to be bloodstains on them and a couple knives. There was an overturned Bowflex workout machine, like directly to the right of where the hands were found so it's almost as if like a struggle happened Mm -hmm. according to officer campbell the hands appeared to belong to a male and the wall and carpet surrounding where the hands were found was like saturated with blood and the blinds in the window that was immediately behind the overturned bowflex were like all messed up Uh so they appeared to be like like a struggle like they were torn and ripped this is what i'm thinking did he kill the dad while the girl, the lady was at the Walmart? I think and so. She came mm-hmm. He ambushed her. Yeah. I think we think he's never confessed, but I, that's kind of was the evidence. Say, that, he kind of skedaddled out of there pretty quickly for the the lengths that he went to. Yeah. You know. Right. He didn't really do a good job covering it up. Mm-hmm. Not that I would have done better. Let's just be clear. Oh yeah. Right. Let's see. I'm trying to see if they. If I have a video or a picture, oh, here you go. Look, here's the tubs in the bathroom. (laughs) Oh, you found them? Yeah, I'm reading a note right now. A note? What note? Bitch, I'm about to get to that. If you don't get the fuck off of Google. You talking about the notebook? That's literally my next. I'm not saying what it is. Bitch. Now you know how I feel. Get the, I don't do it. I don't do that during the episodes. I don't do it before either. I'm going to kick your ass. I'm not reading it. Go on. I'm about to take your phone away from you. I need to know what's on the side of his face. We'll figure it out. So, the next section is titled The Notebook. Like, um, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling? Not quite. I've never seen that movie. Oh my god. So, on November 30th, 2016, the police finally got the evidence collected from the scene back to the lab. And so that notebook was located not in Baton Rouge. It was no, in Tennessee. In Knoxville, yeah. So it's admissible. Um, although they, they they did they tried to argue and say that they made they room. So they got a whole half baby up in here. What? Who? Oh, Jesus. 
the defense tried to make the argument that not only was the search in Baton Rouge unlawful, but that they had no right to enter the house in Knoxville. After everything you were saying, um, they wanted to back out. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where my brain is going because a lot of times you, um, if you see something Mm -hmm. that is super questionable like that, you want to bow out and get a a search warrant. Mm -hmm. That way you're you're covered. Mm -hmm. But well, they they did that, but they finished clearing the house first to make sure there was nobody alive. Yeah, but at that point you can't say yeah, you know, like. But because it was a welfare check. Yeah, ultimately, ultimately the judge ruled that anything they found in the course of that search was admissible because even though they didn't have a search warrant to enter the first time and they found what they found, they had a reasonable worry mm-hmm. or a reasonable concern about right. what ha- what was going on inside the house. So you remember that backpack no. that was found in the corner of the guest bedroom? Oh, yeah. Well, fasten your seatbelt, bitch, because it's about to be a bumpy ride. So first, let me tell you, Joel Michael Guy Jr. was the person staying in that guest bedroom. So, inside this backpack, they found a bunch of random items. Hold up. Yes. Why the fuck he ain't take this with him? Because he's fucking stupid. Gilmore. <laughs> so. Some skin drops. <laughs> Stop reading. I can't. I was trying to find my books. <laughs> so, they found like a calculator, like a TI 84 oh graphing God. calculator, some scantrons. <laughs> A blue book used for essay type exams that was purchased at the co-op in Baton Rouge. Yeah, like the, the store. The, writing the blue portion book. Of yeah. Your exams. Yes. I need to get yes. a, a blue schedule. <laughs> yes. God, I don't know. A mouse for a laptop, not the animal. Like the, the actually, mouse. You know, it's actually called a mouse device. Is it? Yeah. Oh that's well, I. That's what people are like. Is it mice or mouses? I'm like, it's, it's mouse, mouse devices. devices. Oh, me and Ryan had that conversation the other day. So there was a mouse device, <laughs> um, legit like eleven books in one backpack. Yes, which weird, but like okay. But the most important Maybe thing. That's why his face is so large. He just has so much knowledge stored in there. Y'all gonna see mm. which ones? Yeah. About. Most important thing they found in this backpack was a spiral notebook, and I know this doesn't seem like much, and usually it wouldn't be. However, it's probably the off-brand knowing him. However, that's true. This notebook was not just on any other notebook. No, this notebook was basically like a handwritten murder to-do list. I'm not kidding. Like, I can't make this shit up. And so, we all know by now that brevity is not my strong suit. I know, she kills me. And although I would love to just pick and choose a few items off of this list, I'm going to be... This is not when you need to be brave. Yeah, I'm going to be 100% honest and say that I'll likely just read all of it because, A... It's fucking bananas. B, it's fucking disturbing. And C, it's very telling. And just so y'all know, I'm not going to say quote, end quote, over and over no, because... Just fucking yeah. We know you, We know where. Yeah, so everything is directly from that list. So page one. Get mm-hmm. killing knives. Quiet. Multiple. Get... So brevity was a strong <laughs> So I don't know if you want to wait and like talk about each page or if you just chime in whenever. Um... Get carving knives to make small pieces. Get sledgehammer, crush bones. Bring blender and food grinder, grind meat. Get bleach, denature proteins. Get plastic bin for denaturization process. Does not matter where they are killed, just get rid of bloody spots to prevent evidence of time of death. And in parentheses, not the mattress or couches. 
so he really thought this was going to be a pretty clean process? He's an idiot. Get rid of bodies inside the house. There and my DNA already there. Flush chunks down toilet. In parentheses, not garbage disposal. Get plastic sheeting for disposal process. Get hollow point bullets just in case. That part was crossed out, but you can still read it. Mm-hmm. Will be seen buying bullets. Just use computer room gun. So he he was a gun owner. I mean, he lived in Tennessee. Go right. figure. And he basically had guns in like every room. So mm-hmm. that's what he was talking about. Check to make sure there are bullets. And then in parentheses, last resort. He's not alive to claim her half of the insurance money, all mine. In, in parentheses, $500,000. So he didn't know about Exactly. That. And he killed her for him, the dad first. Mm-hmm. Because of that. Yep. I was. I thought about that earlier. Mm-hmm. You'd said 50-50. Yep. God, I'm so good at this shit. Flood the house. Covers up forensic evidence. Flood it. Yes. With water. I guess. Okay. Turn heater up as high as it goes. Speeds decomposition. Bleach reacts with luminol just like blood. Douse area with bleach. Big sprayer. Lie, period. Trash compactor, question mark. Body gives time of death, alibi. Don't have to get rid of body if there is no forensic evidence on the body. And then in all caps, his fingerprints and DNA. And that was the end of page one. Wait, don't get, don't have to get rid of the body if there's no forensic evidence on the body. And then he wrote his fingerprints and DNA in all caps. Like I don't like he did it, but then what you're gonna kill yourself and cut your own hands off and put your own cut up your own body and put I'm yourself sorry, you've in dismembered the dismembered somebody, I'm sure your DNA is somewhere. Exactly. Like, yeah. Whatever. So then on page two, minimize things I touch throughout the visit. Wear gloves and socks to prevent fingerprints and footprints. Drop something down the garbage disposal to break it. Get him on the ground fixing it. Kill him with the knife. Clean up mess from him before she gets home. So that goes back to what you said if he killed her, killed him first before his mom got back. Because so, he doesn't look like a very strong dude, so I don't think he could have taken both of them at the same time. He looks like a gamer. Like he... Yeah, he was. He's probably a virgin. Like... An incel. That's an incel. And if... Lisa went to the store like 12, 18 or something. Mm-hmm. That's when she checked out. Yeah. So that, I mean. That gives him a lot of time. And then he could have ambushed know, her when she got home. that Walmart was? Uh, I want to say it was five or ten minutes. I did look it up. Yeah. And then she also, I think, went to a pet smart to get food for the dog, too. Which was still, which was found in her car. The food for the dog from the pet smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, then he, the list says, <gasps> kill her with knife. Oh, no. Kill dog after. Then that was crossed out. Thank God. Then he said, take dog with you. But he didn't. He left the dog. Uh-huh. Then he wrote, place her in shower with dog. This part was crossed out. Turn on hot water and point at her to get rid of forensic. Remove her clothes and take them with me for disposal. Place him in plastic bin and use it to get him into the upstairs bathroom. Cut off his arm and plant his flesh under her fingernails. Like a struggle. I guess. But again, like I said, you don't dismember yourself and put your... You can't dismember yourself and put yourself in that thing. So if you're trying to make like a murder-suicide type thing, that's not... That doesn't make any sense. He's an idiot. (laughs) 
place her hand with his DNA so that his DNA is not washed away by shower. Use sodium hydroxide to destroy his soft tissue and soften bones for transport. If I sound low, it's because we're at the library and I don't want people like, what the fuck? <laughs> don't bring your baby to the library. Baste once every hour to accelerate. Flush sodium hydroxide down the toilet. Wash out bin with handheld shower head and then direct handheld into toilet to flush everything out of the pipes and into the public waterway. Douse killing rooms, and then in parentheses, kitchen, question mark, with bleach. Place hair curler with flammable paper and flammable containers of gasoline in four locations. His killing room, her killing room, his bathroom, and her bathroom. Wipe down areas near killing rooms and bathrooms. Turn heat up to 90 degrees to melt fingerprints and dry everything. Wait, the, the fingerprints on the wall yeah, or the actual I fingertip? <laughs> I don't know. But that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Set her phone to send me a text message late Sunday to prove that I was in BR and she was, in quotes, alive. She was at an Android. You can? You can schedule texts. Really? You used to could, yeah. Huh. In 2016, yes, you could because I dated someone who had a that's suspicious yeah that's, that's weird, weird. That's so... leave through front door and wipe down doorknobs timer for flammables set for friday at 10 a.m sunlight masks fire and then in parentheses but not smoke everyone at work so they can't report it and that's the end of page two so i guess he had a plan like blow the house up too i, I mean that didn't happen but but, and you know what struck me? So, he was 28 years old. He's never had a job. His parents have supported him his entire life. So, it never occurred to him that his mom not showing up for work. Is alarming. Yeah. And would, you know, trigger what it triggered. You know, them checking on him and stuff. So, then on page three, ultraviolet light shows fingerprints. Check mail before leaving. What? Yeah. You we will pay your bills? I mean, you don't right. know how to do that. Right. To get rid of blood, use peroxide, and then in parentheses, hemoglobin, and bleach, in parentheses, DNA. Yeah. I can't even follow along. I know. Page four. This page was titled, Destruction of Bodies. Then it says, Composition of Body, 20% fat, 20% protein, 55% water, 5% other compounds. And that's all that was on that page. And then page five was titled Assets. Then it says her assets and lists the following. Her life insurance, $500,000, possibly more with double indemnity. So quick sidebar, I looked up. I was about to say what was it? I looked up the definition for double indemnity. I actually looked, I, I was like reading this and I looked at my husband and I was like, what is double indemnity? He's like, I don't fucking know. Why would I know that? So according to dictionary.com, double indemnity is a provision for payment of double the face amount of an insurance policy under certain conditions. Example, when death occurs as a result of an accident. So, yeah, I didn't know what the hell it was, so oh, I looked it up. I mean, I know the conditions of my life insurance, like if there's yeah. an accidental, if there's a cancer diagnosis. I, I just didn't know. Critical illness. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know that it was called double Me indemnity. Either. But back to the murder notebook. You probably didn't know that either. You Googled it. Yeah. Back to the murder notebook. After he mentioned double indemnity, he continued, with him missing slash dead, I get the whole thing. So that's what you, goes back to what you said, that he, 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 he killed him first. And then 
It says, all other assets are joint. Go to him if missing, unknown if he is dead. His assets include, in parentheses, includes all joint property if missing. When he gets all joint property, also gets joint debt. Then he puts Knoxville House. Homeowner's insurance, possibly, but probably worthless after fire. Oh, $100,000. Yeah, it's arson, you dumbass. Do you know it's not illegal to set your own house on fire? It's not? Nope. It's only one big claim. Mm. Sir Goinsville House, appraised at 400000 plus, worthless with Renee on the property. The Renee's the sister of the dad. Like, so his aunt. So why would she be on the property? She might live. They might. It might be like a family compound yeah. thing. I'm not sure. Or at the time, I think Renee was still like the executor of that estate. Like I don't think they had officially signed everything over. So that's probably what he's talking about. So then he wrote her car, his SUV, and then in parentheses, not paid for. And then his boat, his old truck. So that would be in, free car yeah. And then in um, parentheses, paid for. His 401k, eighty thousand dollars, possibly less after taxes. Seems kind of low, huh? Yeah, it does, huh? He could possibly have savings and and or investment accounts. So, yeah. Whew, child. That was a lot. And that's putting it lightly. Like, what the actual fuck? Like, who the fuck writes down exactly what they're going to do while they're planning to murder somebody? Okay, so then they talked about the um, surveillance footage from Walmart. So they showed it at trial, and the first footage was actually of Lisa purchasing her groceries and checking out around 12.15 p.m. on Friday, November 26, 2016. One of the law enforcement officers testified that the wallet and purse that Lisa is shown with in the video are the same wallet and purse mm-hmm. that were found on the table of the residence, of their residence following the murders. And the law enforcement officer also testified that the clothing Lisa Guy was wearing in the video was the same clothing that they the found clothing. at the top of the stairs. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was also footage of Lisa walking out of Walmart, and before she exited, she stopped to put her jacket on. You know, like in the little, like the entrance uh, exit. The foyer. Yeah, the foyer of Walmart. Um, and I was like fighting back tears watching this footage, which I know sounds stupid, but it's like she was just living her life, going about like no idea. Yeah, like going about her normal grocery shopping, and she had like zero idea like what was in store for her when she got home. And she definitely didn't know that her life is about to be cut short by the hands of the one person she loved more than life itself. I don't know. It like I don't know. Like seeing people on CCTV footage is just like really eerie to me. Wow. Yeah, but at least it was it was legible. Like you could you could see it. <laughs> um, so the next video that was shown was the surveillance from that same Walmart, but it showed an unknown male entering the store at 3:26 p.m. on November 26, 2016. This unknown male will event, would eventually be identified as Joel Michael Guy Jr. Um, the surveillance footage depicts him going to the first aid slash pharmacy section of the store and purchasing items that were consistent with those that were found in the upstairs bathroom in that bag. And honestly, I feel like he was in that section for a really long time, like three to three and a half minutes. And maybe it felt longer because I was watching it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it was just eerie. And then the next footage that was shown was him using the self-checkout to purchase his items at 3.34. And in the video, you can see he has a bandage on his right hand. Mm-hmm. And l- let me just say, he has a huge bald spot. Like, he dude was only 28 at this time, and he was balding something terrible. Because that self-checkout is, yeah. like, above you. Yeah. 
And I never noticed that. He had a huge super, bald spot. Super thin. Yeah. Um, is it normal for men to start to go bald at 28? Like, I don't know. It could be younger. It could be... Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll have to it's ask... All, it's all genetics. Maybe we'll have to ask Mikey. <laughs> yeah. So, he knows all about premature balding. It's one of our friends. We're making fun of it. But anyway... Um, the lesser godparent. <laughs> anyway, it's just something that struck me because I didn't like I didn't realize he was balding until that moment. I, I, I know, and I know it's not like a super important detail. I just wanted to mention it, but like, I don't know. Maybe like you think he was like mad because he was balding. Like I don't know. Mad about what? Yeah, just an angry little man. So the next time we see him, he's exiting the store with his one bag and a buggy, like one bag of stuff and a buggy. Crazy fuck. <laughs> Um, law enforcement officers were also able to witness Joel Michael Guy Jr.'s vehicle exiting the Walmart parking lot, and as a result, they were able to obtain the registration from the Louisiana plate on the back of the vehicle, and it came back to Joel Michael Guy Jr. So after this, a bolo, be on the lookout, was issued for Joel Michael Guy Jr. based on that information uh, obtained from the crime scene and the surveillance footage from Walmart. So the BOLO was issued through NCIC, which is the National Crime Information Center, if I remember correctly. But maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit, Amanda. Yeah, so, okay. Ideally, if you have a dispatcher who knows what she's doing, um, Joel is a person of interest, suspect, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call him. So you would enter him in NCIC. But because we know what he's driving, mm-hmm. we can link his his um license plate mm-hmm. which when you were license but you get the entire registration mm-hmm. um to him so right. if you stop the vehicle in a traffic stop and you run the license plate the hit it's called a hit mm-hmm. it'll come back mm-hmm. um right uh wanted person mm-hmm. if i pull um if i it's called a what are they called a Dispo check? No, FIC, field oh. interview card, oh, okay. it's called. If I, if he's walking in a neighborhood and he seems suspicious or if I want to just, hey, everybody, let me, let me come talk to you. Like, a lot mm-hmm. of times they'll do that if there's been burglars in the area. Yeah. They just stop and, and they run everybody in that area mm-hmm. just to have something to go back Yeah. On. It's not profiling, I promise. Yeah. Um, but, like, running his name would come up, too. Running his name and his DL because yeah. you, you, Oh, every, gotcha. Everything's linked. Yeah. So, the DL, the... Um, license plate. License plate. And even if he says, my name's Joel Guy, and then he gives, like I've said this before, if he gives me a few days off. And his date of birth. His date of birth, it's still going to come mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's intelligent system. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and then at trial, they showed, like, um, I forget what the name was, but basically like a system that pulled his license plate and they tra- were able to track that's how they definitely knew he went to back to back. So we, we could do that. We could only do uh, the state of Louisiana of ours, but mm-hmm. yeah. well, they at that point they were working with law enforcement. Uh, yeah, yeah. But in like, Louisiana if, too. If they had his license plate, I could go pull. I ran my license plate before to make sure the system was working, and I can see every red light camera in the state of Louisiana that I went through. Oh wow! Not red light camera, LPR camera. Yeah, license plate so recognition. If I go into parish, if I go out the parish, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to hide these days. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So. On November 29th, um, because of the BOLO, the um, Knox County Sheriff's Office was contacted by Academy Sports in Baton Rouge for an attempted firearms purchase by Joel Michael Guy Jr. Q 
Can I just say, again, this dude is a goddamn idiot. Mm-hmm. Like, you just murdered and dismembered your parents, then you're going to drive back to Louisiana and attempt to purchase a firearm? How stupid are you? Like, do you like, not... why didn't you just take one of the ones that you Exactly. Like, do you not realize that background checks are required or supposed to be required when you purchase a gun? You probably didn't think there'd be, like, zero and in on him that quickly. Yeah. Well, he's stupid because he left all kind of evidence. So... I mean, the notebook itself. Yeah. Whatever. So... On November 30th of 2016, Agent King, who was an FBI special agent, I think out of the New Orleans or Baton Rouge field office, was working this case, and he responded to the Lowe's Home Goods store in Gonzales, Louisiana, to obtain video footage. Which, by the way. Yeah, okay, quick sidebar. Like, that gave me chills because that Lowe's is literally in my backyard. Like, if I left my house right now, I could walk to Lowe's in about five, maybe ten minutes at the most. Freaked me all the way out that this psycho was that close to my house. Yeah. Anyway, Agent King was able to obtain video footage at the Lowe's from November 7th, 2016, which was four years ago yesterday, um, which identified Joel Michael Guy Jr. as well as his vehicle. Um, and I think he had purchased like some cleaning supplies that they found. Mm-hmm. Um, also on November 30th, 2016, Agent King responded to Academy Sports in Baton Rouge. Um, and recovered footage from November 18th to 19th, which depicted Joe Michael Guy Jr. there as well. So then they interviewed Michael McCracken, which that is a name. I I'm not. Name. I'm not making it up. That's really his name. I like that name. He was Joel Michael Guy Jr.'s roommate, and according to uh, McCracken, they they lived together on and off while they attended LSU, Louisiana State University. Go Tigers! Although they suck this year, Sad. but whatever. It's totally off subject. There's a guy in the media room. He's wearing a number nine Bengals jersey. Daddy Joe. Right, way. Joe Burrow. So they lived together on and off from 2007 to 2015, and I'm not. Oh God, that's a long time. Yeah, like I'm not sure how long they lived together, but Michael described it as like off and on. Were they both incels? I don't think so. Look at my Facebook. So, Joel Michael Guy Jr. actually called Michael from jail on December 10th, 2016. So, that call was played during the trial, and I considered including a clip, but it's, like, really hard to understand. So, I figured, you know, it wouldn't, you couldn't hear it. So, the bulk of the call was basically just Joel and his prior roommate discussing what Joel had done. Like, on a recording? Yes, like, like talking, well, he didn't exactly admit it, but he said several times that he had fucked everything up and that he'd never be happy again. But all he wanted was for Michael to be happy. And Joel told Michael, quote, out of all the crap in that apartment, you're what I'm going to miss the most, end quote. They were in a relationship. Okay, I got that too. I don't know. I have no idea. And look, I'm not trying to like, like accuse anybody of anything but that's that's the vibe, the vibe that i got i'm yeah, not sure on and off yeah like i'm like a so and, and, yeah like i don't know but like you know him saying that you know out of all the crap in that apartment you're what i'm gonna miss the most that seems sweet but when you really think about it well, it's yeah. not sweet like you're you're saying that you'll miss your roommate who's a person more than all the stuff in the apartment you shared like i mean i sure hope you would miss him more than all your meaningless crap you know? Yeah. But anyway, during cross-examination of Michael McCracken, Joel Michael's lawyer attempted to paint Joel Michael's family in a bad light, and he was attempting to make it seem as if Joel's, Joel Michael's family didn't want to have anything to do with him, and that Joel Michael... Well, yeah. 
Yeah. And that Joel Michael was a bit of a loner and would oftentimes spend a lot of time in his room on his computer. And sometimes Joel Michael's college roommate would not see him for weeks at a time. Like he would just go into his room and he wouldn't see him. Michael would be in his room for weeks? No, Joel Michael. Oh. It's confusing, I know. Yeah. So, DJ. you know, even though they lived together on and off for like a long time, the roommate testified that he wasn't aware of Joel Michael's interaction with his family. Like, basically, like, they didn't mess talk. with, they didn't yeah. talk, they didn't want anything to do with him. And, of course, ADA Nazios was having none of this shit. Like, she made it clear that Joel Michael did not have a relationship with his parents and his sisters because of his choice, because he did not want to have a relationship. He just wanted a pocketbook. Right, like, um, and that he was not abandoned by his family. And she's like, I don't appreciate mm-hmm. the way that they're painting the victims, you I don't know? I know that he was necessarily, like, he thought it was just his interpretation yeah. of it. Yeah, well, and that's, well, not not the not the witness. She's talking about the way the defense was asking these questions, oh. trying to paint. And, of course, the defense was like, well, that's your interpretation. That's, you know, whatever. But, um... I don't know, I was happy like to see her refusing to allow the defense to paint them in a less than appealing light because that's just not the case. Yeah. But back to Michael McCracken, um, he testified that he did not even know Joel Michael had sisters until he read an article about the murders. And it mentioned that he had three half sisters. Like wow. he had never mentioned to his roommate who he called his best friend that he had three half sisters. Like that's so weird to me. And just sort of confirms what ADA Nazio said about Joel not wanting that relationship with his family. Because, mm-hmm. like, why would you not tell your best friend that you have siblings? He's like an incel. He just... <laughs> yeah. It's like he, he separated himself. Intentionally, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you don't pay my rent. Right. So then they interviewed, or they um, called the stand special agent forensic scientist Kim Lowe with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation Knoxville Crime Laboratory. Um, and she works in the forensic biology unit. Okay. Yeah, so she works cases for the presence of bodily fluids, semen, saliva, or blood, and then she creates a DNA profile based off of that. And then once the DNA profile is complete, she'll compare that profile to any, like, known samples. So she got, like, a bunch of different... I'm not going to list them because there was a lot, of, but she got a lot of different evidence from the crime scene. The and sludge. Then, yeah. Well, like scissor like the bloody scissors like uh swabs of different things the gloves like a lot of different stuff mm-hmm. um and she also got a um i think it's called a buccal swab yes a cheek swab mm-hmm. of um joel michael guy jr like to compare we um have you can have a warrant for those oh yeah they i think they did so but like sometimes we'll, like we come across a like oh my god this guy's on a warrant and then we'd read it and we're like oh no we just need somebody's crime scene to come out and swap it because mm-hmm. that's like, mm. so then we you know contact the um, reporting agency like look yo we got your shit yeah <laughs> you know um so the and i'm just gonna go through a couple of the things that she found because it was a lot like she testified for like an hour and a half so the scissors from the top of the stairs were tested by Special Agent Lou, and tests indicated the presence of human blood on the blade of the scissors. But we knew that. Yeah. Right. Well, well, from looking at it, but, you know, they have to test it, right. you know. So the DNA profile obtained from that item was consistent with a mixture from at least three individual individuals um, where at least one is male. So Joel... So it was a mixture of three blood. So, Joel Guy Sr. and Joel Guy Jr.'s DNA profiles were consistent as being major contributors to the DNA on, on those, that blade. So, basically, a mixture of, you know, Joel Guy Sr. and Joel Guy Jr.'s blood was found on that blade. 
Lisa's DNA was found on the blood stain on the handle of the scissors, mm-hmm. not the blade. So there were nitrile gloves found in the hallway bathroom, and those were tested, and blood found on the gloves belonged to Joel Michael Jr. And his DNA was also found on most of the knives that were tested. Which would explain his bandages. Mm-hmm. Well, and that he used, like, I think they found his DNA. Some of it was on the blade, but some of it was on, like, the handle, too. Oh, DNA gone. Yeah. Um, Lisa Guy's DNA was found on the knife at the top of the stairs, and Joel Guy Jr.'s DNA was found on the tip of the knife from the master bathroom, and Joel Guy Sr.'s blood was found on the handle of that same knife. So, he, I mean, he did it. Like I said, I didn't want to go too much into it because it was, like, a lot of, like, and it was, like, a lot of, like, medical jargon and, like, technical jargon that I was, like, that's just going to go over everybody's head. So then the medical examiner, Dr. Amy Hawes, who, um, she was a medical examiner for Knox County. They qualified her as like an expert witness. Um, so she typically performs like 250 to 350 autopsies per year and she's been doing it for like 20 years. So like she knows her shit. Her body counts. (laughs) Oh God. So when Dr. Hawes arrived at the scene with her death investigator, like her lackey like a person that helps her um she was greeted at the door by law enforcement officers where she was basically debriefed and given a quick rundown of what they had already found dr hawes testified that it was apparent that there were numerous rooms that were part of the crime scene which we already said that um like there was evidence found in almost every single room Mm -hmm. um she briefly described that she saw various chemicals in different rooms throughout the home there was blood spots in different areas and there were dismembered body parts in different rooms of the home she continued that her first overall impression was that this was a very complicated and unusual crime scene (laughs) like duh so dr hawes was asked by ada nazios if she remembers how long she was there like working that scene and she testified that she doesn't know like the exact amount of time, but it was at least several hours. Like they arrived mid-afternoon and it was well after dark by the time they left. Um, she described what she encountered as she moved throughout the home. She said it felt really warm, especially upstairs. And as she moved upstairs to the second floor, she testified that there was a distinct chemical odor emanating like from the second floor, which is where those bins with the chemicals mm-hmm. in it were. Um, and she said there was also like a slight odor of decomposition, but it was more a chemical mm-hmm. type odor. It's kind of probably nasty. Mm-hmm. She said that the transferring of the remains to the lab was a really complex procedure because imagine. of the state. Like they had to drain, they had to drain those um, containers into like big drums. It was a lot in there. I mean, there were two 50 gallon containers. She testified that on November 29th, 2016, she originally began the autopsy um, our examination on Lisa Geigerine's first. However, there were multiple examiners at the lab at the time, so the autopsies of both Mr. and Mrs. Guy were taking place simultaneously. This is this is gonna get in depth and gnarly. So I'm not. I know you. I'm it's not gonna say. bother you, but I don't know if there's other people that I'm are gonna. It. So, Dr. Hawes discussed the autopsy report that she prepared on Joel Guy Senior first. She testified that he had been dismembered. His arms had been removed at the shoulders, and his legs had been removed at the hips. His head was completely skeletonized, and there was a defect of the bone on the forehead. Um, But it was in such bad condition that she couldn't tell whether it was from the chemicals or... um, Blood force. 
Yeah, or if it was from blunt force trauma. So there was very little skin remaining on his on his body. Um, she testified that he had skin remaining from the back of his head, like near his neck, down to his buttocks. Mm-hmm. And they think it's because he was placed in the chemicals face down. And typically your body's going to float. Mm-hmm. So like your back, his it's back was probably exposed like out of it, mm-hmm. you know, out of the liquid. So that's why he still had skin there. But other than that, there was like all this, basically all the skin had... Um, been dissolved by the chemicals and because that skin was gone it exposed bare muscle and sub some subcutaneous tissue mm-hmm. which is the layer of tissue that lies beneath the skin right. I asked my, again I asked my husband I was like do you know what that is and he was like no why would I know what that is so I googled it but um because they have like well I asked him that because he's sitting next to me half have, the time um, subcutaneous injections or oh. intravenous injections Oh, that makes so, sense. I think subcutaneous is yeah. kind of like directly into the muscle. Oh, the gotcha. So, ADA Nazios asked Dr. Haas to walk through the wounds she noted on Joel Sr.'s body. So, before she even started, Dr. Haas gave a disclaimer that when she gives a number of wounds, it would be in terms of at least X amount of wounds. Could be more. Yes. Because his body was in such a complex state that it was impossible to know how many wounds he suffered. So, let's jump in. Like I said... Trigger warning, it's going to get really gnarly. Most of the wounds Dr. Hawes observed were on Joel Sr.'s back, where the skin was still intact. Mm-hmm. Um, on his back, Dr. Hawes identified 34 sharp force, sharp force injuries, stabs, or cuts. The injuries were from, were from like, right at his shoulders, like, right where your shoulders are, to right above his buttocks on both sides. The sharp force injuries ranged in length from one inch to seven inches long, and the maximum depth was six inches. That she knows of. Like she said, it could be deeper because of the state of the mm-hmm. bodies. So associated with these stab wounds, Dr. Hawes identified injuries to the liver, both lungs, both kidneys, and multiple ribs. Six ribs were cut on the left, and six ribs were cut on the right. She also identified five stab wounds to the left side of um, Joel Sr.'s abdomen, and there was also a section of Joel Sr.'s right side where a portion of the abdominal wall was missing, so some of his bowels were protruding. Um, and as we already know, his hands were the only part of his body that was still completely intact because they were found in another room. They weren't in the chemicals. I don't understand. I know, I don't understand that either. It's weird. So was he, he wasn't murdered under the sink? Like, what? he said that um, jam the. I don't. I don't. Yeah, we don't know. He because he like the way the injuries were to his back, you feel like that'd be the perfect. But they're like they didn't. Unless say, he drug him upstairs, because there was well, no, they but they would be the, the kitchen. No, that's true. Way. So I don't know what he was doing. Yeah. But Dr. Haas stated that other than the hands being slightly dried out from like early decomposition, the skin was intact and pretty well preserved. Joel Senior had small abrasions on the back of his right hand and a small abrasion um, of his left pinky finger, and on the palms of his hands, he had multiple linear cutting wounds, which she described as classic defensive injuries because they're consistent with somebody putting their hands out, you know, in front of them or grabbing at the sharp object to defend themselves. And so next, Dr. Hawes described the autopsy of Lisa Guy, and similar to Joel Sr., Lisa was also dismembered, although there were some small differences um, Lisa's head was completely severed so from her body. No, but it was skeletonized from the shoulders up. So like no skin left. Yeah. yeah. 
but then her head was completely severed. Um, her arms were also severed at the shoulders, but her, her legs were severed at the knees. Not the head. Yes. Um, much like Joel Sr., the skin on Lisa's back was still mostly intact and pretty well preserved for the same reason. Um, as we already know, Lisa's head was located in a pot submerged in liquid in the kitchen. And Dr. Hawes said the liquid in the pot was not the same liquid in the bins upstairs because it didn't smell like chemical in nature. Like they think it was maybe just water. They didn't say that, but, yeah. and they said um, her skin on her scalp was still mostly intact and her hair remained like, uh -huh. so the chemicals would have eaten all that. So Lisa had at least 25 sharp force injuries to both sides of her back, uh -huh. which were approximately six to seven inches deep. Associated with these injuries, Dr. Hawes identified internal injuries to the heart the right ventricle and aorta, both lungs, her left kidney, her liver, and her third thoracic vertebrae, which is like a bone in her spine. Lisa also had five relatively superficial stab wounds on her buttocks as well. There was a large cutting wound on the right side of Lisa's abdomen, similar to Joel Sr.'s wound, um, through which Lisa's internal organs were protruding. Dr. Haas was unable to tell if this wound was due to the dismemberment or not. Like, it was just so hard to tell. Like, it could have been from the, the liquid, huh? Like, eating away. Yeah, it's see, it's so hard to... Yeah. Um, there was a stab wound on the left side of Lisa's upper chest that extended down into the skeletal muscle. She had 12 cuts on her left ribs and 9 on her right ribs. Also, on her right shoulder blade, there was a small cut on the side of the shoulder blade. Dr. Hawes testified that the types of stab wounds the guys received could cause death in a number of ways. Um, stab wounds that strike the lungs tend to interfere with your breathing. And she stated that if the wall surrounding your lung is punctured, then your lung can't expand. So it would be difficult, if not impossible, to breathe. Um, and she said there would also be major blood loss associated with these types of wounds. Um, both of those situations would not cause instantaneous death and would likely take anywhere between a few seconds to a few minutes for someone to succumb to those types of injuries. Now, they, they don't know, which, you know, because of the state of the remains. But um, Dr. Hawes uh, did find that the cause of, of death for both Joel Sr. and Lisa Guy was multiple sharp force injuries and the manner of death was homicide, which obviously. So there was a forensic anthropologist who worked on this case, Dr. Murray Marks, who's employed by the Regional Forensic Center in Knoxville. He also testified, but his testimony was mostly just reiterating what Dr. Hawes already said. So I was like, well, that's not, you know. Um, so that was the, I, I did not include every single witness, but that was the bulk of it. And then they had like closing arguments. So during closing arguments, the prosecution just ran through all the facts that they presented and um, just going over everything that we discussed. But when she put it all together like she did, it was really powerful. Um, I'm not going to reiterate everything because we've already talked about the facts of the case. Um, but 88 Nazios really drove home the point by saying that Lisa Guy basically paid for everything that Joel Michael Guy used to murder her. Wow. And like that just really got me and like that she did all of this for her son and he still did what he did but i'm gonna let her tell you about it because her statements were so powerful so i'm gonna include this little clip real quick defendant had gone through her purse and had taken out her wallet and, and his father's wallet and he got money okay he needed cash 
Lisa guy paid for the medical supplies that he bought to treat his hands that he hurt when he was killing his father. And then she says, calmly as you please, he goes to the Walmart. He, uh, he goes through the, uh, the doors and he goes to the medical department and he buys his bandages and he buys hydrogen peroxide, two bottles of it, two big bottles of uh, rubbing alcohol because you know what? Rubbing alcohol and peroxide in small, even, even small bottles can destroy evidence. They can clean your wounds, but they can also clean things off. Like that K-bar knife, for example, that's on the, uh, on the uh, bathroom counter. She paid for his medical supplies. She paid for all of this, okay? Because she was supporting him. And think about that. She paid for the drain cleaner she was dissolved in. She paid for the muriatic acid. She paid for the work lights that he thought he was gonna need. She paid for the sledgehammer. She paid for the timers. She paid for the plastic sheeting. She paid for that garden hose. She paid for the small sprayer in the master bathroom. She paid for the big sprayer, the bleach sprayer that was left in the floor of the kitchen. She paid for those garbage bags. She paid for his socks. She paid for his red potato salad that he got when he was buying his medical supplies because he worked up an appetite after all of that and he was in the mood for some red potato salad. Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. She paid for the tubs that she and her husband disintegrated in. She worked all those years at Jacob Engineering to put him up, to keep him in his lifelong whatever program he's in at LSU. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, she was still looking for a job in Sergoinsville. Do you remember Renee Charles telling you that? She wasn't gonna cut him off. She was gonna find a job up there. She was gonna keep supporting him. Oh my goodness. She gave him everything he wanted. And then she had the nerve, the nerve uh, to tell him that uh, they retired and needed a break. Nobody else had a reason to do this, okay? No one else. And uh, the proof in this case isn't strong. It isn't, uh, any, it isn't anything other than uh, overwhelming. Overwhelming. And uh, we ask you to consider everything in this case. And uh, we ask you to uh, convict him. Convict him of premeditated murder. Convict him of felony murder. And... Uh, convict him of abusing the corpses of his mother and his father. Thank you. 
So total in total, closing arguments lasted like two hours. I didn't even see where like, I, I mean, I skimmed through it, but like I didn't see where his uh, lawyer even really said anything. But I mean, what are you gonna say? Murp. Murp. Well, he did it. Like, <laughs> please don't find him guilty, but he did it. Um, he didn't need to. <laughs> please. So on day four of the trial, which was October first, twenty twenty, the jury started their deliberations around three o'clock p.m. And just after 5 p.m., the jury decided to halt deliberations and go home for the night and continue the next morning. So the judge dismissed them with the following instructions that they were not allowed to discuss the case with anyone, including family and friends. Um, they were not allowed to watch any news media coverage about the case, including social media. He was like, be very careful, you know. And the jury was not allowed to discuss the case amongst themselves during that recess. So the next morning, the jury resumed their deliberations around 10 a.m. and returned a unanimous verdict around 11.30 a.m. So they deliberated for right around three hours. And they returned a guilty verdict on all seven counts. Two counts of first-degree premeditated murder of Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy. One count of first-degree felony murder for killing Lisa Guy while committing first-degree murder of Joel Guy Sr. So that should be... First degree? Yeah. yeah. Uh, first degree felony murder. Well, two counts of. It's always different in different Oh, yeah, different states. states. But I'm trying to like yeah. relate it. Um, and then two counts of felony murder while committing theft, like one for each of his parents, because he stole, you know, he took things. Um, and two counts of abuse of a corpse for Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy. So the judge sentenced Joel Michael Guy Jr. to life in prison for all counts except for counts six and seven, which was abuse of a corpse. Um, he'll, he's due back in court um, November 19th, which is, what, 11 days from today, um, for sentencing on those counts. Good, I mean, he, he's gonna spend the rest of his life in jail. And I told Amanda this earlier that it blows my mind that he never worked a day in his life besides an unpaid internship, but whatever, and like, he basically murdered his parents because they were going to cut him off and he didn't want to work and support himself. And now he's going to be spending the rest of his life in prison still not supporting himself. Mm-hmm. So now I want to put um, talk about the victim impact statements. And I have a couple clips um, from some of the family members. The first one is Alvin Mater Jr., who is the oldest brother of Lisa Guy and the brother-in-law of Joel Guy Sr. Then they are. Lisa and Joe were murdered. They were butchered. Their bodies were desecrated. Their spirits were forever harmed. The loss of my family members will forever be internal. I stand for them in their, st- in their statement. Days after of hearing of Joe and Lisa's murder, my mother was hospitalized. She never exited, exited the hospital. The loss of your child was difficult for her. One that I hope I never have to endure. But to find out your daughter was murdered by your own grandchild was heartbreaking. Lillery, Lillery, we not even, she could not even attend his, uh, the funeral. Uh, she was unable to say her final prayers. She was, un- she was Catholic, so she was unable to take communion at her daughter's funeral. Next day after we buried Joel and, Joel and Lisa, 
My mother died. Before to bring her back, she truly died of a broken heart. There were three deaths on your hand, on Joe Michael Guy Jr.'s hands. My grandchildren lost their great-grandmother. My stepson lost his grandmother. And I lost my mother. On that day, I lost my family. How sad is that? Like, yeah. her mom literally died of a broken heart. Like, she couldn't even go to the funeral. And she died the day after the funeral. So they had to bury his sister and his brother-in-law and then his mother. Like, ugh. So then um, Shanda Fink, who was Joel Michael Guy Sr.'s oldest daughter, she gave her victim impact statement next. First of all, just so I don't forget, say thank you to all law enforcement and the lawyers, the court, the jury, everyone that had to see all this. And I'm very sorry that this evils had to come into their life too. And that I will be praying for all of them as I do for my family as well. Dad and Lisa were wonderful. They were larger than life. They were so happy and such really good people. And they loved him. They loved him so much. They loved all of us. And for anyone to do what he did, I don't understand it. He has taken something from myself, from my children, his dad and Lisa's grandchildren, my husband, our fa everyone in our family. He has taken something from us that we'll never get back. We will. I pray that we can move on from this and that we can put this behind us. I pray that that my children are not going to be scarred for life from this. The tears that's come from them, the nightmares. I'm so thankful for today. I'm thankful that this day is done. And I'm so thankful that the jury decided guilty on all counts. And I'm thankful for giving me the opportunity to speak today. Dude, my heart, like she lost her dad and her stepmom and she first, like the first thing she does is apologizes to everyone else. Like she's so pure. Um, so then um, Angela Crane um, spoke next. Twins. Yeah, one of the twins. I wasn't prepared to speak today. Um, it's like for four years, I felt like I've pushed it down, like it's not actually happening, but it's real. And they're gone. And dad was my best friend. And I'll never get to hear his laugh again. Or his just incredible hugs. Um, I'll never get to sit and banter with him and hear the same stories we've all heard over and over, but they're still just as hilarious because Dad was such a storyteller. 
I'll never get to go fishing with him or, or what he likes to say, have a cocktail. Or it's five o'clock somewhere. I, I was robbed of having my father walk me down the aisle. And Lisa, my last mother on earth, was taken away. She was the most loving and giver, giving person I've ever met. She would give the shirt off her back to anyone, the last dying to anyone. And she, she was my best friend too. They were both robbed of seeing their grandchildren, their handsome boys grow up and turn into incredible men. And to the, for them to have to go through this tragedy so young is just, it's heartbreaking. I still, I still have dad on speed dial. Like it hurts me every day not to be able to speak to him. The rest of my love is not gonna be the same for any of us. And I know there's a void that will not be replaced until that beautiful day when we meet again. <laughs> My heart hurts, but I felt like it was important, like, to put them, you know, because, I mean, we can talk about it, but you know what I mean? Like, they're, it's their family, you know what it's I mean? Their it, it's life. their words. Yeah. It's their, you know, and that's why we, I try to, we both try to be really respectful of, you know, the victims, because we know that that's, they're somebody's family, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the last victim impact statement I'm going to play is um, Michelle Tyler, Angela's twin sister. I don't know if you all have a hero, but I I have heroes. And it's such an awful situation to even have to have heroes, but I thank all of you all sitting here and everyone back there that are still here for five days and seven days and you've been here every time, every single one of you are my hero. As a little girl, I watched how much Lisa loved Joel Michael. I wanted to be that mom. Joel Michael, was Lisa's entire world. Most girls dream of weddings, I think. I don't know. But I dreamed of being Lisa with the picture-perfect family, with the dad coming home at five and me having dinner. I wanted to love as strong as Lisa loved. The dinner at dad's and Lisa's home included me, which was so different. We we would stay there in the summer. But we were at my mom. My dad lived like six hours or hours away and so my, we stayed at my mom's, um, included me, which was so different at my house where we grew up poor and it was just pasta. So when we went to that house, it was like meat and candy and um, they provided a loving and caring home with all the extra stuff. Some of this I have to, I can't read that sentence either. My dreams were to spend the next 40 years at Thanksgiving and Christmas laughing with my parents. My dreams were to move Lisa and dad into my home. I would even banter with them about them moving into my home when they were old to model for my kids how to take care of your parents in the last days because I'm moving in with my kids when I get old. But I wanted them to see that like I got to see my mom take care of her parents. I got to see my mom stand by her her parents' um, bed when they died. And I wanted that. My dream was to hold my mom's, Lisa's hand as she took her last breath. My dream was to hold my dad's hand as he took his last breath. 
people take moments like that for granted, but I wanted those moments with my whole soul. Not only that, the kid's childhood was taken away. I am angry for my dreams being destroyed, but I, but I'm not the only one that's been affected. This has impacted my kids, and for that, I will never be able to forgive. I rest easy knowing that God is okay with my choice not to to forgive someone that has murdered my parents. I had to spend the last four years saving my kids' soul, their spirits, and their hearts. I have spent the last four years cleaning up a mess. No one will ever know what it's like to have to be a child having to hear that your grandmother's head was cooking in a pot because because the the person that did it had the perfect childhood he especially not a man with that childhood and on a super selfish note you'll never know not meaning you like meaning um what it is like to have to tell your their, your children that their grandparents have been chopped up and put in acid can the boys ever can my kids ever trust again would i ever really be able to trust again I was always so proud of Lisa and I told everyone that she was the best stay at home mom. I mourn for my dad and Noah. I keep talking about Lisa. I, I mourn terribly for my dad, I do. But I grieve and rage for Lisa. I rage for her from the mother's point of view. I cry for her because I wonder if when she realized the love of her life, the only son she had, the child that she gave her entire life to was about to murder her. I wonder if at that moment when her heart was broken, did she even fight? Thank you. <sighs> we needed a break because I was going to cry on the freaking podcast. I know. I think the part that got me the most was at the very, very end. When she said, you know, I wonder at the end of her life when she realized the love of her life, her only son was going to kill her if she, if she even fought. Because as a mother, like, I, I don't know. Like, you, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Because, I mean, you want to fight, but that's your, like, that's your child. Like, what? That's the worst yeah. part about this. That's why you have a kid. Oh, my God. But, yeah, her, Michelle's, um... A victim impact statement. I mean, they 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 all got to me, but I think hers was the one that really really got to me. But but you know, I'm gonna have to commit me when my dad dies. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I'm gonna commit real when my dad. Dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably so. Being that this case literally just just happened, like he still hasn't. Well, as of today, he hadn't been sentenced yet on the last counts. But I mean, he's gonna spend the rest of his life in jail. Um, I haven't seen anything about an appeal yet, but I mean, I'm sure it's coming. I mean, it always does. Um, but I'm pretty confident that he's not going anywhere. Like, I hope he spends the rest of his miserable life in prison. But is he really being, is he miserable now? I mean, he can't play his games. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody's bitch. Yeah, I hope so. I, we need to find out what the hell happened to his face, too. Hip violation when I got Oh, out. that's true. Maybe he had an infect. Oh, maybe he had an abscess tooth. That's what I'm gonna hope that he had. Cause he looks like a whole different person. Yeah. Well, he looked like he had lost weight from when he initially was arrested. And then yeah. he grew facial hair. Yeah. 
His hair was super long, too, at one point, and then he cut it all off before the actual trial. Because in, like, pre-trial stuff, his hair was, like, down to his, like, past his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't look as thin, and it wasn't blonde. It was darker. Yeah, it's weird. What is going on? I don't know. Maybe he's using a comedy C barbershop. The the what? Correctional uh, center. Oh. (laughs) Barbershop. I don't know. Woo, child. That one was rough. Like... We drink tonight. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Whoo. All right, y'all. That's the case of the horrendous murders from Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy. Oh, real quick. They did not include him in the obituary. So that's like one small. Good. Yeah, like good. So, but anyway, <laughs> um, if you like today's episode, please rate and review us. Maybe we'll read a few of the nice reviews on the episodes or rage about the bad ones, you know. Yeah, y'all. Follow us on Instagram at homicide homegirls facebook at homicide homegirls podcast and our discussion group is separate um and at uh, on twitter at homegirls pod if you want to suggest an episode y'all just do it yeah like, we love when y'all do it i know um, there's a form located on our facebook page so you can do that send us a facebook message or an email it, or, or about random things it doesn't have to be requesting a case it doesn't have to be you know just whatever yo what's for dinner right <laughs> <laughs> alright y'all bye. bye happy thanksgiving bye.